When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. looking at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality, for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon. Of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds from the underground. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on YouTube. And on the TuneIn Radio app, search End of Days, and you'll find the 24-7 network. Or you can go to michaeldeacon.com. You may be wondering, why is Michael on live right now? Well, I'm joined by two special souls currently right now. John Kelly is in the house. Let's bring him in. John, are you still there? Yes, I am. Amazing. Thanks so much for being here and sharing some time with us all. Uh, it's great to be on radio. Oh, I agree. And we do have a very special guest joining us right now, Dr. Peter Ward. Let's bring him in. Peter, hey, it's me. And th- I'm here, and thank <laughs> you for having me on your radio show. Peter, could you actually hear me when I was going through all that nonsense? <laughs> I did. It was great. I liked the uh, opening sound bites, too. You got the great tunes going, so yeah, this is going to be fun. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you can be here. And, of course, you are a professor at the University of Washington over in Seattle. And have been forever. You've been there since I could remember. Yeah, well, I've 
been there even before I can remember. I mean, there gets to be a point you get so old that the memories sort of blot away. So, yes, it's just been a lifetime. You know, it's funny. Uh, it goes by so fast. It's the scariest part about life, I guess. It really does. And, of course, we are joined by Mr. John Kelly here. John, go ahead and say hi to Peter. Hey, Peter, it's very nice to meet you. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to tell us about climate change and environment. Yeah, well, thanks, John. And where in California are you guys? Because one of my best friends is just finishing a tour in Paradise. And Paradise oh CA, as we know, has, has been hit by just some of the worst ravages that any humans could ever experience. And it's, it'd be interesting to know just how you guys have come through the last, I mean, the age of fire is upon us, isn't it? Oh, we're going to get into that right now. And I'm actually in Southern California in a very small city called El Centro, California. And, well... Yep, I know where El Centro is. You guys have had your own Southern California fires for oh the my last goodness. couple of years. So it's been raging. It has. And, of course, you most likely know about this location. It's only an hour away from where I am. That's the Salton Sea. Oh, beautiful. Oh, my goodness. The smell's lovely, right? Well, I mean, you, you just, geologically, uh, I find that sort of inland sea business really fascinating. Uh, I've been up to the end of the Gulf of California, and there's any number of places where, as we get hotter, as you know, uh, we are going to have more and more salt deposits growing with the just the great increase in climate change. So, anyway, you guys are in a pretty dynamic place, so enjoy it. Oh, John, where exactly are you at, if you don't mind telling uh, Peter here? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we've had our own uh, insane forest fires uh, past years this season, this last summer season being being no different. Yeah, I'll say, because, John, I live in in near Snohomish, Washington, which is north of Seattle, and we, the last two years now, we've had, uh, all through August and much of July, we've had just your forest fires, that north to south wind is just blowing right to us. And, you know, I've lived in that area for decades, and this is only the last couple of years we start seeing the recurrent forest fire skies. It really is a new age. I mean, there was one day I was asking, and they said there's 57 counted fires in B.C. It's just crazy what's going on. I agree that we've, we've seemed to have turned the page collectively, although it, it's not uh, apparent that necessarily that we're ready as societies to respond to the changes. Well, it's, you know, it's funny you guys say that. I was sitting in the house of my partner, and last summer we were here. I'm in the tri-cities of Washington now, so I find myself living in northwest Washington and driving across to eastern Washington. And this house itself nearly burned to the ground, and they're just finishing the restoration from it not burning to the ground, but the house next to us, all that's left is a chimney, and the hills behind us are nothing but black soot. Three other houses were taken out, and a barn with two horses burned to death. And this all happened just as quick as you think. You're sitting there for a day, and we had 15 minutes to get out of here before the fire was jumping on top of the roof. It's And this is, I mean, for this place, too, it's just, this is brand new days. Where does this come from? Well, that's pretty simple. Carbon dioxide. Where does it come from? The U.S. has produced more CO2 this past year. Uh, just, you know, you yell and scream and try to get people to understand that there is a cause and effect. And global warming through carbon dioxide rise is going to have an effect, and the effect of forest fires, that's one of them. But when it hits personally, I mean, for you, John, and for me, and certainly for you, Michael, this 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 just is new days. It certainly is. the biblical is. new days. You know, that's, that's funny you say that. 
about the whole cause and effect because I've been saying this on the program time and time again. I've been beating in, beating it into the heads of my listeners. Uh, the fact that this is a, the reality of what's currently going on. We're seeing all these earth changes and most of the people out there, they're very resistant for some odd reason. I'm not quite sure if that's the doing of the mainstream media, perhaps. I, I don't know, but a lot of them seem to deny this climate change, that is. Well, I, I guess all of us have always thought, oh, my gosh, climate change is coming. Climate change is coming. But, I mean, when you sit through a fire season, uh, you Californians have known this for a long time. But right. I think it's for we Northwesterners, this, this, this is a new thing. It's just to have that smoky month-long season as B.C. burns and Washington State burns and back here in eastern Washington, it burned all summer. And it's just all it takes is a little bit warmer summers, and you're getting enormously sort of outsized contributions. I guess this is a surprise. It's not like a slow tick getting warmer, getting warmer, and things are getting worse, getting worse. No, it is getting warmer, and then boom, all kinds of new consequences, new world consequences happening. And that's the surprise to me, and I hope it's a surprise and the wake-up for everybody. Oh, yes. This is the time to wake up. All these earth changes are happening right before our very eyes. And I have to say, 2018 was rather entertaining. I gotta admit. Of course, we didn't get any, of course, we didn't get any flying cars yet, but we did have plenty of uh, sex robots and drones. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't at Gatwick Airport a few weeks ago when the drones shut down that big British airport for for a couple days. Oh yeah. So yeah, we're, we're in new world. We certainly are. And again, Peter, I, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program here. I know we took, uh, I don't know how many weeks to finally get you on here. Yeah, well, that's, that's not so much me being busy as I think I'm just, <laughs> I'm lazy. We'll just put it down to that. How's that? That'll, it'll work that way. But I'm glad we connected. No doubt. You sound like a normal professor. No, I'm an abnormal professor. <laughs> I like to think that I like the normal professors. I'm not as boring as the rest of them, but that's well, just me. So who knows? <laughs> you're certainly not boring, that's for sure. And, of course, Peter, so much to discuss with you here tonight. Now, in terms of mass extinctions, uh, the name of the program is called End of Days. And, of course, yep. a lot of your books are basically about this, since there have been numerous extinction periods. Well, again, it, you know, it's, it's, I love having these conversations, but there, there is, I find in myself, the more you talk about this, the sooner or later you just sort of the realization of it is, it is depressing. And the greatest aspect we have to do is have these scientific discussions and yet still walk away with a sense of hope. Because if you have no hope, you do nothing. It's kind of say, oh, screw this. You know, nothing I can do. I can't do anything. But things do hit me in the head hard. Uh, for instance, this past year I went to Fiji, and again, I'm, I'm a thousand-year-old man, but I was, as a young man, I was there in 1975 and 76 and 78, 79, 80, 81. I was able to watch beautiful Fijian reefs and all through the Pacific. As a young man, I researched coral reefs all through there. And now all these years later, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to have the decades later and still be able to dive and still, you know, have the gift, the lucky gift of being able to get down and see this stuff. The difference is it's horrendous. 
I mean, it's horrendous to have seen those reefs, to have pictures of them in the old 35-millimeter format back when you needed to develop stuff, and compare it now to what there is. The coral reefs are ravaged. And again, it's not that climate change is going to just sort of slowly happen, but it happens in big jumps. It's not this gradual thing. It's there's a state, and then you jump into a new type of state. And we've gone from 100% reef cover in the Fijian outer reefs to 40 to 50% reef cover, and the rest are dead. And you're getting these masses of low oxygen warm water that come right up. And what happens, it's called coral bleaching. It's so warm that the tiny plants that corals have in their bodies are pulled out. And so the coral's still there, but now it's naked. It's, it's transparent, and it dies soon after that. So that's what's going on. The Great Barrier Reef is going on. The reefs are going on, and we are seeing things. And then, of course, in the last week, we saw a new study coming out saying that uh, global temperature change, oceanic water temperature change, isn't going to slowly go up by a degree or two, but we are looking at a major state change of many degrees. Again, it's not going up one degree every 10 years. It's around, and then you get to one of these tipping points, and up it goes massively, and we're seeing that. I mean, we are seeing mass extinction of reef creatures. The first step to kill anything, to kill a species, you've got to kill the individuals, and we're seeing the wipeout of individuals. The species will follow. So, again, it is just massively disappointing for me to witness this near the end of my life, so much closer to the end of the beginning. And it's a tragedy, and it's a tragedy that we humans have caused. That's true, and it's something that you've been talking about for so many years. And time and time again, I, I have to say this once again, many people out there are just so against this for whatever reason. Anytime the environment is brought up, it seems like people want to resist and fight it. Well, I don't think anybody's going to be able to deny it over the coming years. I, I don't care. I don't care where you live in America that what we're seeing in the Midwestern regions is going to be a gradual drying and a move back toward conditions that were present in the 30s with the Dust Bowl-type conditions and ever more dust storms. We're going to see ever more really dangerous tornadoes. I mean, how's this? I, you know, John, you and I both know we live in a place where the one thing we never worry about is getting killed by a tornado. And yet a month ago, just in a suburb west of Seattle, tornado touched down, ripped off the house, the roofs of about 10 houses. This is like, what? You know, what? What is this? What? And again, it's just slightly warmer air conditions can produce gigantically different state conditions of the state now, as we can expect, nasty tornadoes in places where they never used to be again. Same with the fires. We are seeing the changes that people said must be in the future. Well, the future is now. Well, windstorms that you're discussing are, are very significant here in Vancouver because we're getting hurricane force winds uh, on, on a regular basis. Now, storm systems that used to only show up once every 50 years that were ex expected, are, those conditions are now recurring uh, every couple of years. We, we we had that just last month. We had hurricane force winds. It's, it's not normal for this environment. No, I, I agree. I, I'm, again, my little house, I have a cabin, a wood burning stove cabin on this lake. And, uh, my roof's okay, but my neighbor lost his roof. We had that big storm. I think I know the one you're talking about just a couple of weeks ago at most. And it is coming through. And these windstorms that were, you're right, once in a decade or once in a century windstorms, there's more and more and more of these. I guess, you know, the, 
the thing is that I've, I'm so ashamed of what we Americans are doing compared to Canada. I did my PhD in Canada at Canadian University, McMaster University, Ontario, and I was a landed immigrant. And sometimes I just wonder what my life would have been had I stayed in Canada, because at least there's an environmental concern there that I find greater than at least what's going on now with our president here. And it's no coincidence. I mean, it is a chance event that the United States had an increase in the amount of greenhouse gases that were produced over the year before. And it is simply because we have an administration that really does not care about reducing greenhouse gases. And, and we are paying that toll right now. We don't need a wall. We need a reduction of greenhouse gases. As you've mentioned, Canada is on message with man-made uh, global warming or man-made climate change. Canada is on message, and the state-sponsored media up here, when they run a story about climate, they refer to that. And so our, our federal government under the Trudeau uh, administration is, is on message, but the critics say that the government still has to act on on, on vision. And, and what we're engaged here in Canada is that we have yet another pipeline struggle occurring, particularly here in the province of British yes, Columbia. Yes, I know. So, so the government, although we're on message with man-made climate change, the government is buying massive pipeline projects that are guaranteed from critics' perspectives to lead to spills and other catastrophes. Well, I mean, the fight happens everywhere. Washington State right now, uh, there's been a move, at least people are talking by the federal government, to nationalize some of the ports to build ports for coal. They want to have big coal trains coming through Washington State and then truck the coal out to other countries. That's the same story with you guys' pipelines. And again, I mean, in Canada, people have to work. We need economies that work. But I think one of the great disasters for all of humanity, if the Athabasca tar sands are really fully exploited, then the pipelines you're talking about are trying to be able to take product from Alberta and move it, of course, to other markets. First of all, leave it in the ground. I mean, there's going to be a need for, for petroleum products over the next centuries, that's for sure. But just even the transportation of these coal products and the oil products and the oil sands and the tar sands, I mean, after Alaska, if, if that is fully developed, as you know, that's going to be the greatest CO2 producer in all of Canada. So every country has stuff still to do. And as we all know, the elephant in the room is, is population growth that we want people to have a great standard of living. And yet as we move for past 7 billion and move up to 8 billion and hit 10 billion probably the next 50 to 75 years, people are going to need energy. So even – it's a big fight. It's, it's, it's a race. Can we get ever more reasonable ways of getting energy and increasing standards of living everywhere? Because we will not reduce population numbers until we have everybody on this planet has reproductive rights and has standards of living that are capable of understanding you don't want five kids. Well, the five kids business itself is going to require ever more energy. So we're in this conundrum now. Try to reduce global population. In the meantime, you have to have people living. You have to raise standard of living of women everywhere. And once that's done, we can reduce population on this planet. No, but I mean, it needs to be said. Well, population reduction is a, is a very interesting and controversial idea. You don't see other means of restructuring economies to uh, distribute wealth in, in different ways than how we do it now? Well, look, there's no single solution to 
anything. I just know that we're seeing a reduction in birth rates in industrialized countries. I mean, Japan has a negative population growth. There are many parts of the states that have vastly reduced population growth. Where you're seeing the most rapid population growth, I think Nigeria is among the highest of all. I've worked in many of the countries along the northern tier of Africa, uh, Tunisia, Algeria, into Egypt. You've got enormous rates of population growth as well as relatively low standards of living compared to ours. You raise standard of living, you reduce population growth, but once you raise standard of living, everybody wants energy-efficient cars and, or cars at all. And so you start needing more and more energy. And so we are in this really interesting world where it's going to take every bit of human ingenuity to try to fix this stuff as we try to beat off the reaper. Because I'll tell you, the forest fires and the storms that are coming are just going to be great mortality events in human populations. Yeah, that's unhelping for the air that we breathe in. Yeah, I'll tell you, breathing that smoke is pretty, pretty much Especially a, a out bad here. news, John and I know. Yeah, well, you know that stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. People have to stop exercising. Their quality got so bad that you, people have to stop exercising. Here, here's these forest fires. Right. And, Peter, here's the thing, though, again, why is it that here in America it seems like the majority of individuals don't really care about the environment? Why is that? Well, I don't know if that's entirely true. I think a lot of us do. So many cares break down to sort of economic choices that have to be made. And um, at the moment, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, one of the tragedies that I see is, is gasoline now in the city I'm at. I was amazed. It's down to about $2.30 a gallon. So gas is so cheap that driving a great big gas-hungry SUV is, gee, I mean, gas is so cheap, let's just do that. So I, I don't know. I guess I'm a bad socialist, but I'd love to see gas taxed to the point that it's at least five dollars a gallon. Uh, certainly, Europe over the last thirty years, with the high taxes on gasoline they had there, they produced. Everybody runs around in little bitty cars, except for the Germans in the Autobahn. And we seem to be. We had a movement in that direction, and now the administration, of course, is cutting back. Obama was really pushing hard for higher mileage standards, and that's going by the wayside. Look, the thing that has to be done in all our countries is we have to vote. We have to understand that what we can do is live in ways that try to reduce carbon production and vote. I mean, the fact right. that it's just amazing, the fact that only 50% of Americans vote. You know, in Australia, if you don't vote, they find the heck out of you. Everybody votes. 100% in Australia because they find you. Now, as an American, I'm going, well, that's not liberty. I should have the right to not vote. You maybe want to think about that. Get to the point where, look, we're all in this country together, and if you decide not to vote, you don't have the right to bitch about anything. Well, that's true. I agree with you on that 100%. But going back to the fact that we're still using these cars pumping in all that gasoline, I'm still amazed that we're still using that. In 2019, I thought by now we would have much more, um, I guess, more electric cars, rather, on, on the front lines there. But no, we don't actually. We don't really see that. Well, again, economics, they call it the, the, the dismal science, but it's certainly in all our lives. It's just what things cost, what we can afford. It, choices are made and they move forward. Again, I just, I just. I hope over time that changes what, though. Well, I hope so too. But again, so much of, of what is happening and is going to happen really is affected by politics. And the politics That's true. are going to drive how fast 
things change and how they happen. Um, my own biggest concern, I think the greatest effect of climate change that's going to happen over the next decades is going to be the need to spend so much more for infrastructure because of sea level rise. Just in my state, and John, I know the same for you, is that you, you guys have, you've got those beautiful mountains in Vancouver running right down to the water. And we in Washington State have one of the biggest north-south rail lines, the one that would take us to Vancouver, goes right along Puget Sound. I mean, it's such a pretty trip because the railroad bought up when it was land was cheap, and they bought up all next to the, to the water. It was the cheapest place to build. It was low. You could truck in, or I'm sorry, you could barge in all the material. But you know what it's going to cost to raise the, the, the altitude of even all the highways and all the rail tracks that are right at sea level now? I mean, if we have even a six- or eight-foot rise in sea level in the next century, you're going to have to replace a heck of a lot of infrastructure. And that becomes, I think, the economic cost that people don't see coming. What percent of, growth, of gross national product will have to be spent on retrofitting to deal with sea level rise and to deal with the climate change that is coming. In my city, Seattle, we have just finished a, I think it's a $3 billion, I don't know, who knows, it's, it's magic money, a big tunnel that runs oh, along right. where there is this viaduct. So we're knocking down the viaduct, and I think yesterday was the last day that viaduct, which has been there my entire life, is being used. But they engineered this thing for a one-foot sea level rise for the next 100 years. And I'm going, what? So, yeah, 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 it's, it's not going to be more than a foot in 100 years. So that way, this is a 100-year tunnel. It'll be fine for 100 years because sea level will never go above a foot. And I said, what happens if it went up five feet? And they go, oh, well, hell, that would be the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I'm going, good thinking, guys. I mean, who, was, who was on the watch when you started thinking about building this tunnel engineered for a one-foot sea level rise in the next 100 years? Yeah, see, that's what's so scary. That sort of crap. Mm-hmm. That's it's what, crazy. It is crazy, crazy, indeed. And, you know, anytime I hear about sea levels rising, I always freak out. I always think, well, it just it's just going to take one major earthquake down here in California, and the ocean will definitely take over where it once was, and I'm below sea level. So, of course, I freak out all the time. Yeah, so you're, you're at very low altitude, all right, but it, it's, it's coming. The other thing we have to do is try to educate our kids the best we can, try to plan for the future, and just try to each of us live to the point that, that we can get through this. Oh, yeah. Know, just just, just an hour away, uh, Peter, from the hydrogen sulfide that we're breathing in all the time out here. Well, that's the Salton Sea. Oh, the Salton is turning out hydrogen sulfide. I didn't know that. Tell me about this. I'm getting educated. Oh, that's, oh it's been going the land. Oh, it's been going on for such a long time. Of course, they call it the Miracle Sea in the Desert, as as they once said back in the, I think it was like in the 1930s, once the Salton Sea was in its prime and had all sorts of tourists. And now it's just a, a kind of a shallow ocean of body out in the middle of nowhere. With a bunch of dead fish everywhere. Yeah, a lot of algae. Yeah, a lot of algae. A lot algae. of algae that die and rot and hydrogen sulfide. I guess that's it, isn't it? It smells like rotten corpses out here. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. It's a very strong smell, and it's one that you could at times even smell all the way out here, even being an hour away. So this is a, a very, very bad area to live, the air pollution. And, not, of course, not to mention all the agriculture that we have out here. We have all kinds of crop dusters. And sometimes it gets windy out here, and 
you know, you're breathing in all these pesticides as well. There we go. End of days. There you go. I'm going to die. So, <laughs> what, so what do we, what, what does one do and what do you tell your listeners to not get so depressed that nobody does anything? What, what are the, what are the, what are the things that can be done to move forward and actually try to mitigate any of this? I mean, what sort of advice do you give? That's the hard part. Because again, Peter, as I was telling you before, when you talk to individuals just off the street, you, you just ask them about a hydrogen sulfide. And again, they'll think you're talking about hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, not many people are that in tune with their surroundings that I'm just blown away. I'm not quite sure why some people don't really take account for, for these things, but that's, that's a problem that here in California we face. We don't have too much of an answer how we could fix the problem with the salt and sea. There's been plans to clean up the place, but I haven't seen that. I haven't seen anyone actually try to do anything out here. Okay. So we, we, we're doing a downer here. We've got to get, get our, our listeners to, to consider the good, good sides to all of this. That's true. Um, at least in, at least in BC, one, one of the funniest talks I ever gave, although at the time it was catastrophic, I was invited to Napa in, I think, 2002, and it was to give a talk to the California Agricultural Association, and it was in this great big country club in Napa. I was fantastic, beautiful hotel, and there was there were about 100 people, and they were the richest farmers of California. I mean, the biggest of the big, and these were the owners of the best wineries and of the biggest San Joaquin Farms, and on and on. So, you know, they, they, somebody had told them, yeah, this guy Ward can give talk, good talk, have him give an after-dinner talk. And I went there, and I tried to at the time. I mean, climate change at that time was not anywhere on the plate as it is now. But I've already been thinking a lot about what happens to the valleys in California. And I said, you know, about 100 years from now or less, this Napa Valley, this, this great wine growing, where incidentally in that same year they had sold an acre of land for the highest price of agricultural land ever sold in America. I mean, good wine, vintage country in Napa is worth a fortune. And I said, 100 years from now, you'd be lucky if you can plant sugar beets in this place. Wow, there was silence in that room. <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. No, They're going, no, it will always be here. This That's will their be good forever. There you go. So, I mean, the one thing, the, the good news, at least for you, John, is the valleys of the eastern valleys of B.C., I think, are going to become the world's, some of the world's greatest wine-growing areas ever. <laughs> That's true. John, John, take over. Well, I, I wanted to jump in on a couple of the Yeah, go ahead, John. And one was with regards to uh, sea levels. And I, I simply wanted to comment that we see with the high force winds that our um, seawall infrastructure in, in our harbor area and in the downtown area around Vancouver is being pummeled uh, by the uh, by the the, uh, the the currents and the, the tide a, tidal action under those high wind conditions. And we we see in the local press uh, during those storms uh, we see images of some of the pedestrian seawall areas submerged underwater. Uh, you know, there's one or two extra feet of water where the park benches and such, it's all unusable. So those, the, the, uh, quote unquote apocalyptic imagery is, is quite, uh, impressive as well as the actual infrastructure damage that the 19th century stonework that characterized a lot of older Vancouver construction, uh, was very heavy duty masonry is, is being beaten down. Uh, it's all crumbling away into the ocean. 
So, uh, so we have, we have pause to reflect. When I, when I read about rising ocean levels and I read about the news, uh, perspectives in the United States, I, I see discussions about the, the highly populated coastal areas like Miami, et cetera, um, or New York, uh, Washington, D.C., all these coastal areas being subject to submersion, uh, with just, um, you know, minor changes in sea levels. So it's becoming visibly evident here in Vancouver. It's something I didn't, for an issue I may have put on the back burner. It's, it's bringing it front and center to me because the city won't be able to operate submerged, uh, you know, uh, seawall, seawalls and pathways. All, all of that is going to change as a result of these. You, you guys had already moved on uh, to, to another part of the discussion, but uh, I was I I, I, felt, I just felt that I had a lot to uh, lot to reflect on Peter's uh, research because we, yeah, no worries. we're being we're being called to uh, to address these questions when uh, for as Peter had mentioned our month of August the air becomes unbreathable for four weeks I mean you can't see the sun I mean talking like nuclear winter type of uh, visions arising in the minds of the population where the entire province is burning. You can't drive, well, you can drive east of the Rockies and you're still getting that bad air. It's so severe and uh, omnipresent. Uh, we, we, In terms of agricultural development, yes, uh, I'm familiar with wineries in central British Columbia, south central British Columbia, Osoyoos, Okanagan Valley, all the beautiful country. And of course, there's lots of beautiful uh, agricultural land further east, but Winery development has been something here. Uh, there's been some very successful wineries here, uh, and other kinds of perhaps uh, agriculture that people might not have thought would succeed so far north uh, of the 49th parallel. But I think uh, there is a call for innovation and, for, and perhaps for social planners to envision what a future society looks like that's that's retreating from the coastal areas and how they succeed, uh, in, you know, feeding their people and supporting a population uh, in style or better than what we had done. Well, amen. And the other aspect, too, you think about feeding the people as salt water goes up. You can obviously make the case that right now the world is really fed, a large proportion of the world, at least in, in the eastern hemisphere, is fed by rice. And we all know that rice is a very low elevation crop. There are many areas below sea level that produce great rice crops. And all the world's deltas, for instance, are areas with very rich and agriculturally rich but you only have to raise sea level a little bit because salt water goes sideways much farther than it goes up vertically. And so it's not just covering it with the salt water that's going to be a big problem. It's even before the complete cover takes place when the storm surge happens that you get this infiltration sideways. And so this is where, again, I think the central valleys of B.C. and the Okanagan and our Metel Valley and all this just areas that we have far from the ocean, these will become hugely important, I mean hugely important areas for feeding this great global population we're going to have by the end of this particular century. But it, it's it's interesting that you're, you're thinking about, we're living in an area, John, you and I, where there is always, at least in, as far as we can see, going to be fresh water. And I think what's happening in Seattle the amount of population increase taking place, and in Vancouver as well, has made it economically impossible for a middle class. House prices have just shot out the window. But it's not just going to be house prices. People realize in the central part of the United States and in other areas that it's just not habitable anymore. When the number of, of nasty storms just becomes to the point where you say, screw it, where, where in North America can I successfully go? 
and more and more people realize, wow, you know, they don't get much snow there. They don't get killer heat. They have fresh water. And this area of the world is just going to be inundated with people. So we're going to have this big fight is, well, we've got to keep the farmland going. But, I mean, the big farmland areas south of Seattle that used to be when I was a boy, they're all covered now. I mean, they're covered with low strip malls and they're covered with housing. And so we're, we're covering up a lot of the agricultural area, and yet so many people are going to be moving into these regions. Uh, Seattle Weekly about 10 years ago asked me to write a, a little prediction of, of the area of the Northwest, in, say, 30 years from now. And so I did it, and they wouldn't publish it. I said, no, come on, that's impossible. There won't be that many people here. And I said, well, yes, there will. Where else will people go? I mean, where can you go where the climate isn't going to overtly kill you right away, as it's certainly going to do with some of the great droughts that are going to be hitting the middle part of the, of the continent? And you're not going to be hit by the monster storms that are taking place on the Gulf Coast. And we're seeing these great pluvial events where these enormous rainfalls has hit Houston. So, yeah, we're going to be seeing large numbers of people moving up to this neck of the woods. And there's, it's just going to be what it's going to be. The questions that you're raising with regards to land usage are relevant here in the Vancouver area, the, Van- the Fraser Valley. So Fraser Valley, a very uh, yep. successful agricultural area and the land has been rapidly converted over the last 20 or 30 years, rapidly converted to housing. Uh, and yep. so there's, I, having grown up in the region and having, uh, you know, gone on family drives through the Fraser Valley as a, as a young kid and remembering seeing all the farmland, that, you know, that vision is completely gone. It's all gone to, going to high density housing and, and commercial development. Uh, certainly there's, there's some, there's some, uh, limits and thresholds here, but, uh, this is, this is a contentious issue because that, that extremely fertile land competing people is just use it for housing for expensive speculative real estate where the owners don't even live in the homes, which is typical in the Vancouver region that they're, the, the properties are held by overseas owners. Uh, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's really, uh, it, it, it's, it's really, Excessive and it's, uh, in relation to livability questions, it's, it's one of the factors that's driving livability questions in the Vancouver region. Our population in British Columbia has grown. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon now to read. It's almost as like the, the, the local newspapers are, are creating columns about all the people who are leaving, you know, to cover the, to cover it as an issue. It's, it's seen as such a trend. If not for economics, it's because you can't, if you're living here in the month of August, you can't breathe the air. That's also going, that's definitely a driving factor. People are, are decisions. if they're, if they're able, they're going to leave, leave an area that, that suffers from those conditions. Uh, so this is, uh, our, the sense of stability. In other words, our, uh, our successful Western civilization, our high tech civilization that has, you know, come, come, come from so much struggle from our ancestors. It's, it's surprising to find ourselves in, in some ways to say that we've, we're, we're in stability. And so much immediate instability and so much is, as you said, houses are going up in flames overnight, uh, and people have 15 minutes notice. That's, that's incredibly unstable. Yeah, there's an interesting parallel to what you're saying. And, I, and you know, I know, I don't know Vancouver really well, but I've been watching the parallel between Vancouver and Seattle and the Bay Area in San Francisco. And again, the Bay Area, they are looking at, at sea level rise in such a way that the land is so expensive there. I mean, they are the sort of what Vancouver and Seattle will be 10 or 20 years from now in terms of house prices, just because high tech there has raised the prices even higher. Although Vancouver, gosh, I mean, the prices of houses in Vancouver even make a person from Seattle gas. It's a beautiful location. Well, that's why. And it's a beautiful location. (laughs) 
So this is this is where this raises prices again. People want to go there because you're going to have even with the forest fires, it's still better than living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sorry, world, but it's just it is. And so these are the the, the challenges that we face, and not least among them, if you have kids, is is how does how does a kid get and afford housing in the Seattle, the San Francisco's, and those next to the woods? Unless they have parents that already have a house and they can put up the colossal amount of money, but we're almost moving back to almost like a feudal society, where you know it's landowners are passing on land to their kids, but anybody who isn't in that particular niche already is to have a hell of a time. That's a disadvantage. How in the world do you get right. the money for down payment? It is a huge disadvantage. Yeah, and it's changing. Political philosophy is changing many aspects of the mode of life that we are. And, you know, life's about change. And it's no surprise that so much going on around us is change. But I I had dinner with a a new friend last night, and we were talking. He's he's another one like me. He's in his 60s, and he was born and raised in Seattle. It's hard to find anybody like the two of us that were in that place from birth. And we were both discussing what it's like and the fact that both of us have moved out and that I just, I hardly know that city that I was born in anymore. I mean, it's a really go, go, go Amazon city that <laughs> yes. it's been taken over and, and it's a different place. It's not the same vibe I knew. Well, again, life has changed, but what I worry about is I have two sons and I don't know how either of them are ever going to be able to, on their own accord, get buy a house in Seattle. And adapt. So what they're not, doing. Right. People are moving. Yeah. People are moving. It's the economy is very bad, and that's one of the things I tell uh, different individuals out there when they talk about how the birth rates are so low and they don't understand why. And I, I try to tell them that today's women are much different than the ones that were around uh, when their parents were around, obviously. And, of course, the economy being as bad as it is, lots of people don't want kids here in America. And, of course, Japan, that's a whole other story, their economy isn't as I'm assuming it isn't as bad as ours yet their birth rates have fallen to the lowest they've ever been on record yeah and again it's the the problem for a lot of the young kids and again I teach college so that's true you know I feel what they're what they go through and the slap in the face is that you keep seeing People like our president say, oh, the economy is the best it's ever been, and look, the unemployment is the lowest it's no, ever been. No, not true. <laughs> Except 99% of those jobs are shit jobs. Exactly. You're paying people lower salaries. You've got to have two or three different jobs, and jobs are no longer these things you have for life. You know, People are moving they by necessity, not by their wish, from job to job, because it, it is a very unstable world. And the money keeps getting concentrated in ever fewer hands as we get ever more people. And, and so there is a sense of hopelessness. And I think the hopelessness feeds right back into what we're seeing in terms of climate change. There gets to be a sense where, screw it, you know, just I don't want to try to make the world better because it's, the world's kind of a crappy place. Why should I work hard? Why should I undergo? Why should I not have my own big car that I can afford at the moment? Why try to make it better? And so the economy, I mean, everything seems to roll around in our financial well-being in a sense. And whether or not we're willing to make sacrifices in an environmental sense, really, again, we need to raise standards of living. And yet doing that is increasingly difficult as, as 
capital gets privatized into ever fewer hands. I don't know. I just I quit spouting politics, but it is <laughs> no, it's true, it's though. a real concern. No, you're right. You're 100% correct on that assessment. And, John, how do you feel about that? Well, I think these are real problems, and I, I have more to say about how the economic is actually get worse this year um, that I'm going to share with you later in the show. But uh, it's a pressing issue. You know, the immediacy. What I what I what I'm summarizing from what Peter's saying is is how we're making decisions collectively uh, as societies about these uh, questions of uh, commerce versus saving the environment uh, based on immediacy, because there are there, there are pressing immediate needs. People have to pay their bills. People have to go to work. You know, shut it down. The government. Employees now are on furlough. It's, it's having a ripple effect on society. These are these are serious problems. You have children to feed. You got to have food on the table. This is so um, the the pressure of our immediacy is the you know, the time that we're living in. In some ways, we are uh, you could say we're constrained or we're prisoners of the era in which we live in terms of our vision and what's possible. Uh, you know, the karma of our past, all that was built before us, the engines of industry, the, the incredibly powerful uh, multinational corporations, and so on. Uh, that were already in place before I was born are just acting, you know, in, of their nature. It's a question of whether our vision includes continuing along this path that, you know, is, is the, uh, is the one percent syndrome really the, the ultimate economic arrangement? Are there other ways we can restructure wealth and, uh, and so on? And then governments are asking these sorts of questions. But it, as to whether or not th- th- these things are ruled out immediately in Canada, the bureaucracy, we have a functioning bureaucracy, but it also moves very slowly. Programs uh, that are being suggested that globally, uh, such as uh, guaranteed incomes, government-sponsored guaranteed incomes, there's there's attempts to roll those programs out in the props here. They're still at a, a very infant stage, but people have people have uh, bills to pay now. Wait, you know, waiting for waiting for that to happen at the pace of change that uh, in terms of how things are normally done. Uh, we've in some senses our bureaucracy is an incredible burden because it's it becomes any bureau, bureaucratic or Organization becomes self-serving, even if its initial mission is to serve the population. It, it, it's, it, it, its de facto behavior is to serve itself. Uh, can go on and on and on into that. But really, what I want to get back to is uh, the sense of immediacy. Uh, you know, when I need for, when I need to be able to breathe the air, I, I can't wait for some promise about things getting better next month. If I need, you know, to not be flooded in my house on the coast, you know, uh, because I, all my electrical and everything is shut off and the house is full of water and mold, I can't really. I deal with the solution that's coming next year. I, it, we're, we're facing circumstances like that, these sort of uh, near-emergency conditions. Uh, society, from my from my very generic overview, is is, is massively obsessed with with commerce and commercial interests uh, at the and uh, we are we are conditioned socially to be mercenaries with regards to willingness to leave uh, corpses uh, on the on the road behind our, our road to riches. So this is. This is sort of the, you know, this is the culture of our times. So, as I said, we, we in some ways, we are prisoners of the of, of the circumstances. We, but but it's upon uh, ethical people, I think, to to make efforts. And if our if the good word that's be, being brought forward through fact-based research into these questions is not heard, you know, if the population isn't qualified to hear that message today, that we can only hope that the legacy we leave behind informs future population who is it, who's competent to interpret the. Uh, the practical science that's, that that led us to those conclusions. In the United States scenario, under the present administration, it's difficult to foresee uh, the science having a place of honor, given the intense backswing. Uh, no kidding. I mean, right now, what I'm warning is so many of my friends at the Smithsonian 
and I've got a ton of friends working for NASA. They're all out, right? They're all out on furlough. And I don't know about you, but I can't go very many paychecks without a paycheck and be very comfortable financially. I, you know, it, it's just the way it is. Yeah. It's just what is happening in the U.S. But it, even more than just the lack of, of all these government servants not getting paid is the complete sort of vilification of science. And it's both through vilification as well as, as ignoring it. I mean, the United States president doesn't even have a science advisor. We are, the fact that we've come to this point, I was, I guess one of the biggest surprises of my life was that as through my lifetime, ever more people were given the chance to go to university. Well, I think that's peaked. I think that's now reversing itself for the first time. But over the decades since World War II, there are, there, the universities kept expanding more and more students, and I really thought in the United States that ever more college graduates would create an ever more liberal society, a more educated society that could make the same job, the same ethical decisions you're talking about. And I believe you're right. I think the conversations have to be about morality and especially ethics. I mean, ethics is not the word you hear enough about. And yet we're now seeing at least 35 or 40 percent of Americans, if you trust the polls, are completely anti-science, that we are now having a, a know-nothing president. He's allowed to get away with this stuff, and that science science and technology are our only really great weapons against the climate change that's facing us, the civilization's onslaught. We need to, from an energy point of view, find technology. We need science to do it. And that if we vilify that, just even the conversation, the way journalists say there's two sides to climate change. No, there's not. <laughs> there's yeah, not an opposite side to this. That's true. It's like evolution. No, there's not an opposite. There's the, you don't give full time to the anti-evolutionists, and you don't give full time to the anti-climate people. And so even society is set up in certain ways. It's hard. Uh, hey, I've got some family stuff I've got to get yeah, to. Yeah, no problem, I've enjoyed Peter. this conversation. Um, but I can, you know, I, I like talking to you guys, and you can have me back. Just set her up the next couple of weeks. I'm yeah. happy to be on on my regular basis if you'll have me. It's, oh, no worries. It's good to be able to talk. I'll definitely have you on here again, and we'll go over all sorts of different things, not just with the, the climate change and the environment. We'll, we'll go into all sorts of different subjects here, and we'll get into all sorts of fun little things here on the program. But once again, thank you so much for being a part of the program. Sure. Uh, me and John both. Hey, John, it was great to meet you, too. Yeah. Why don't you, um, you can track me down at my university. Why don't you give me just an email or a shout, and I'd just love to talk to you offline about some of the, I actually do a lot of work on Vancouver Island. It's just, I'd love to pick your brain about your knowledge of, of that whole neck of the woods. It's one of my favorite places. I, I feel like I made a great connection with you, Peter, and I look forward to our further conversations. I'll definitely be following up with you. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you both for this opportunity. No doubt. And to your, to your listeners, you know, just be optimistic. No problem. Thank you so much, Peter. We'll talk again in the near okay. future. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. And there he goes. That was Peter Ward. Ladies and gentlemen, give him a warm applause. I thought he did a pretty good job here on the program. How'd you feel about that, John? I think he had a lot to say, and I thought he was authoritative in his uh, in his research uh, specialty. He and knows what he's talking about. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. He He's certainly someone that I could definitely rely on with his information since he's been at it for such a long time. As well as his global experience, you know, his perspective on uh, social forces in, in developing nations. Uh, he, he's lived, he's been on the land with the people he's seen for himself. Yeah, it's crazy because he's also an astrobiologist. 
Well, it's a very powerful mind. Amongst being a paleontologist as well. Oh, amazing. So he's all over the place, right? Yeah, but he's someone who can uh, synthesize, you know, uh, research uh, areas that may be, uh, for people who have more limited understanding, he, he can bring together high, higher level concepts. No doubt. That's why he was on TED Talk. Oh, that's... Yeah, he's been there multiple times, I believe. Yeah, he's a he's a really great guy. Well, this is it was important for me to uh, connect with him. I I wanted to be on the show tonight with you guys because I I felt uh, he was very uh, insightful figure, very knowledgeable in his in his uh, field. And yeah, John, I I thought, my goodness, I got to get you on here too because I know you are very interested in the subject. Well, uh, yeah, I I mean, like many people who live in this beautiful part of the world, we feel deep connection with. Mm-hmm. The, nature and the environment. And sometimes, you know, we're talking about Vancouver, the aesthetics of Vancouver, Vancouver under the right conditions. It's, it's literally like being on a different planet. I mean, it's so it's, aesthetically incredible. It really is. You live in such a beautiful place. And of course, in Canada, uh, recreational marijuana is legalized there now. Have you seen any sort of uh, backlash in that out there in the, in the streets in the city there? What I've been telling people is that we, we shouldn't fear on the on the eve of legalization. We should not fear that we'll wake up the next morning and, and we'll see the cannibals on the side of the highway, <laughs> you know, eating the bodies that were left over from the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, it's so, not it's not Florida. We we, we, were, we, were, we shouldn't expect to see that, and, and it didn't in fact work out that way. It, it, it appears as a populist government, the Trudeau government elected to well, they they ran on a legalization platform. And of course, that had tremendous appeal for a variety of reasons. Obviously, uh, the opiate is, you know, the pacifier of the populace. Right. And so, with changing social economic conditions in in urban areas, uh, promising a licentious uh, type of lifestyle, particularly Vancouver, it, 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 uh, not unlike Montreal, uh, but as a Canadian city, Vancouver is is, is a notorious. Uh, you know, very liberal, libertine lifestyle right. uh, city. It pro- promises that kind of uh, availability. The cannabis was widely available through the city of Vancouver through illegal dispensaries that operated for a number of years under the uh, previous uh, legal framework. And with the introduction of legalization, that that has changed. Uh, the province of British Columbia currently hosts, I think, three, if I'm not mistaken, three or four legalized dispensaries that are fully licensed the city, province, and federally, they, they meet all the guidelines. Uh, and all the leg, the legacy purveyors, um, there are, there are, the crit, critics are saying that they, um, there's, there's, due to the intensely slow rollout of legalization in terms as a retail operation in Canada, uh, what's really happening is that the legacy political activist type entrepreneurs are being squeezed out of the marketplace because they can't afford to close their doors for a year waiting for a license, et cetera. The, in other words, the, the ramping up process to the date of legalization was intensely slow, uh, meaning that uh, they didn't have 50 stores ready to open on day. Uh, they're, they're, whole, they're just taking their, their sweet time. Yeah, about, yeah. About mm-hmm. This differs from other Cascade uh, territories like the state of Oregon, state of Washington. Uh, you know, there's, you know, there's public community access to what's legally available. But we, we the change, uh, the climate has changed here. Cheech and Chong, uh, 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 that act originated in the city of Vancouver. That's true. We have a, a long uh, history of that kind of licentious lifestyle. I'm promising that uh, as part of the uh, Lotus Land aura of Vancouver. It's one of the it's one of the old uh, pejorative terms people used to call Vancouver Lotus Land because it was perceived that there were a lot of hippies uh, here during the 60s and 70s. 
Well, uh, and so legalization uh, has brought some changes uh, and perhaps some draconian measures as well in terms of implementation. It's now under law. It's possible for somebody who may be suspected of drinking and driving or DUI. Right. Those people can now be subject to breathalyzer in their home tour two hours after they've got off the road. There's this whole new rollout of a program with the police our division coming to people's homes with breathalyzer instruments to test their breath two hours after they stop driving and so oh on. Oh, my. Yeah, I don't know about that. I do know that the law enforcement here in the States, they're trying to develop a sort of test for for that. For, well, you know. so, so cannabis, driving cannabis mm-hmm. and so on are being brought up. Most of the, uh, the legal issues that have arisen in terms of ticketing, ticketable offenses have related, what I read in the headlines in, in British Columbia related to improper, uh, packaging or improper placement of cannabis when people were transporting cannabis in their vehicles. They didn't have it properly secured or whatever that means. So I, I'm not driving these days, so I don't have to deal with that question, but, uh, it's, it's this, it, it's been like that. Uh, the critics, the legacy activists say that the legalization is, is not the program that they would have wished for. There's a, there's a apparent interest in squeezing the small players out. Whereas the former prime minister, Brian Mulroney and the former mayor of Vancouver and premier of Vancouver, Mike Harcourt are both now deeply invested in the canna industry. Uh, they are, they have either board positions or own their own, their own companies uh, as cannabis providers. And so these, these kinds of interests, uh, seem to be moneyed interests seem to be well served, but as a people's, as a people's issue, it seems to be, that seems to be uh, being squeezed out. The, the active, the cannabis activist culture that has persisted here, uh, they're, they're be, they, they are being more and more subject to fine, questions of fines and arrests. Uh, the Emery family is very that's, well. That's a, it's funny that you mentioned Emery because I was just about to ask you about Mar- uh, Mark Emery. Who, of course, was the most, uh, I guess you could say, the loudest of them all out there in Canada. And he also had uh, his seed company for many, many years before he got uh, popped here by the feds in the United well, States. Uh, the Prince of Pot. He wasn't popped there. This is the point. You see, it was a U.S. policing action on Canadian jurisdiction is what actually happened because they, they, they arrested him in Vancouver and then extradited him out of the country on those non-offenses for which reportedly the Canadian government accepted something like half a million dollars in taxes that were accurately reported as to the source of the income. The seed sales were taxable and the, the government accepted those monies and there, those monies were never returned and the government never responded to questions as to if it was such a criminal act, why was the government, the federal government involved? Uh, Emory was incarcerated in the United States for a number of years and a number of penalties attended his release in terms of uh, his ownership of his businesses, which were, I believe, assigned to his wife, Jody. Jody, right. And Jody has uh, just just announced this week that they're closing three or out of four of the businesses in Vancouver uh, due to the the change in, in climate in terms of enforcement and fears of enforcement. So their holdings have been reduced. Uh, now, my understanding, without knowing any of the details, is that they were very successful. They made that the perception, general perception is that the popularization of cannabis is just a huge money, a license to print money. Uh, you know, it is incredible revenue. Uh, uh, and in terms of entrepreneurs and risk takers, Vancouver is full of them because they, they opened, uh, you know, 50 or more illegal dispensaries in previous years. Uh, the, the Emory's being part of that. The Emory's were, were opening, uh, uh illegal stores in Ontario. <laughs> right. 
after after Mark was released from jail, they were opening these stores in Ontario and, and they were busted uh, by the provincial police there and faced a number of penalties. And so what we're seeing is the dismantling of Emery's empire. And the and as I say, the there's absolutely a, appearances of economic uh, unfair practices in terms of the, the establishment doesn't want to embrace the, the activist community and, and, and help them to prosper and continue as sort of a people's movement. But if you're Mike Harcourt or if you're a former Prime Minister, Canadian Prime Minister Mulroney, the doors apparently seem to be open. You know, we're under we're under such severe pressure here with regards to this question that one of the questions that arises in the local papers is that Canadians seeking to visit the United States can be subject to questions with relation to the cannabis industry. So, for example, even if they're investors, right, you know, playing on the stock market and investing in cannabis stocks, questions related to their investments may be seen as grounds to refuse entry to Canada. Yeah, it's a it's a really strange thing right now since everything's so new and people are just trying to figure out how to regulate things. Uh, especially here in California as well, you would think that we're kind of the front of the whole cannabis movement, well, legalized cannabis movement, but that's that's not really the case out here, uh, especially out here where I'm at. We don't exactly even have storefronts. There there are only delivery services here, and that all has to do with political reasons. Well, so the topic, uh, there's, uh, there's been a, an intense infrastructure. The uh, war on drugs paid a lot of a lot of salaries uh, for, for some generations of Americans, and, and those people are still alive, and the institutions that they work for, DEA, et cetera, have deep, they have deep investments in the continuity of their bureaucracies. And so those political sentiments are, we may, it may take new generations of people to, to see that, to see that change. But I will say that the rhetoric that comes in the United States national news is continued talk about national legalization, and there's people in Congress now, um, some of the progressives who are continuing to push that issue. So I wouldn't be surprised. Even President Trump himself, I, I believe, had, had discussed the issue in a favorable light as if he would be willing to consider that. Uh, I, I believe the day will come that uh, the, the, the younger generations are, you know, the, the society is changing to, to, to accommodate the younger generation's urges and wishes, and uh, the United States nationally will legalize. Uh, I'm, I'm, now that Canada has ended, you know, something I wouldn't have expected to see in my lifetime. Uh, it seems possible the United States will eventually that as well. I hope so. I hope so. And by the way, is Cannabis Culture Magazine still around? Yeah, those guys, they still publish. They still have a website. Okay. Uh, and they still, as I say, the Emery's closed three out of four of their businesses in Vancouver. But so the their original flagship store, uh, they intend to remain open. That is until some kind of law enforcement action forces them. But they're still... No, they're still visible and people can still connect with them. I, I, uh, my closest, uh, time, I think I saw the Emery's at a, at a university conference on the emerging, uh, legalization of cannabis as, as a story. I was interested in covering it and, uh, Mark and Jody were there. They were, they were, they were still visible. Yeah. But both, both are just fascinating characters to me, especially as activists and of course the, the whole Mark Emery direct marijuana seats that started in 95. <laughs> well, Good they had, Lord. Very, they had, you know, Pot TV was a very humorous, uh, I remember, yeah, Pot uh, TV. The whole sort of activist rep, rebel type of aura that, I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, Vancouver's a very licentious city in that regard. The, the police eventually, uh, decided they wanted to, to chase, uh, tougher crimes, uh, like money laundering in the city. So, uh, resources, uh, haven't 
the enforcement hasn't been that heavy. Uh, you know, we haven't tried to pioneer being the, the hardest nosed, uh, community ab- about that question. There's a lot of, um, because, because of black market circumstances, uh, part, one of the, one of the ethical, uh, uh, or part of the ethical aura of, of legalization is to take money out of the black market. It is to stop funding criminal organizations by bringing everything on, you know, on, under the, uh, under the law. Uh, we, as a, as a port city, we have, uh, we have a lot of problems with drug trafficking. We have a lot of fentanyl problems here. We've had a legacy heroin problem back when I was a child or even before. These are very, very serious problems. Uh, at the same time, the city of Vancouver has implemented pioneer, pioneering programs like that are, uh, we're global pioneers in, um, uh, uh, management of, of, uh, addiction, addiction management issues. For example, we have facilities like clean needle facilities, uh, safe injection sites, they call them in the city for people who are addicted to these uh, physically addicting drugs. Yeah, I believe, I believe Starbucks is going to start doing that in certain places out here in the States. That they're having needle collection boxes. Right. I mm. So this, We've, uh, being a port city, uh, you know, there's a lot of goods moving out of here and a lot of illegal goods move out of here and a constituent of that is, is drugs and the, uh, there's attendant criminal enterprises that convene around that. Uh, these are all social problems. We're hoping, what we're hoping is that, uh, you know, we create a safer city, uh, you know, safer communities for, for families and children, uh, so we can have future generations here instead of letting Greek assume everything, so to speak. Correct. And, of course, I do want to move on here a, a tiny bit just to another subject that I did want to get your opinion on, the whole telescope story that found this mysterious radio flashes from deep space. I'm sure you are quite familiar with it since it is a story that I believe has just kind of shot the UFO community in the arm. <laughs> well, the uh, facility is is a uh, is a is a wonderful uh, radio telescope uh, site here in South Central British Columbia, and I've been to the site. I actually went to an open house um, a few years ago uh, because this, the the radio telescope um, installation is at is in an area that is also a very uh, beautiful uh, dark night sky conditions and an excellent filming and excuse me sky watching conditions, and I've I've uh, filmed out in the region for many seasons, so at least five seasons. Everything's beautiful in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> we like to, we like to, you know, we, we enjoy it. We enjoy the beauty of it for sure. We, oh, yeah. we have the gusto with that. Um, so I've, I've been, I've been to that facility and I've spoken to the engineering staff and some of the academics who were involved in overseeing it. And it's a very uh, robust uh, system they have. Uh, I, I, I suspect without knowing any better, that we're probably we're probably um, running data for a number of countries uh, up through that facility. That we're not only running Canadian data through that infrastructure, but we're running data in the United States and Australia and the UK. In other words, uh, listening posts, you know, have various different uh, address various different needs that are not all about uh, astral research. Correct. So we're moving terrestrial data on behalf of Five Eyes nations, quite likely through those facilities as well. Um, I think that the, uh, these observations of persistent signals and, and multi-instrument observations are, are very meaningful. We're, we're in such a peak time in terms of technologies, available technologies, uh, that, um, multiple, multiple instruments can be fo- focused on potential discoveries that, you know, we have redundant and full spectrum data co- coming, coming out. It's, it's really, in other words, it's a wonderful time 
for those types of sciences that we've never been this well equipped, it seems, in terms of known history to, to make these types of observations. As to what eventually that will turn out to be, I believe the distance uh, spotted was 1.5 billion light years or some, something related to that. Some enormous expanse of time uh, it, it's taking for those signals to get here. In other words, if we uh, if we sent a, a signal acknowledgement, receipt of acknowledgement back um, using conventional methods, you know, the conversation would just take forever. We just we'd never know who we were talking to. But the idea that uh, the idea that in potentially intelligent signaling is is happening in, in, on a cosmic scale within the universe, and that some of our instrumentation is is, is able to collect some of the data, is, appeals to many of us. Uh, there's, I believe, there's something called the Wow signal from the 1970s. That these, in other words, this type of instrumentation has been collecting uh, some remarkable signatures uh, we've been seeing for decades. Yeah, it's not the first time. And, of course, this all reminds me of the movie Contact. Mm, Jodie Foster. Right. Classic well, movie. In, in the films, of course, you know, the, the plot moves rather quickly because they only have, you know, 90 minutes or so to tell the story. Oh, yeah. So we move pretty quick to the encounter with the aliens. Here, here the uh, the whole conundrum is this. You know the the general region where the uh, radio telescope system is that that detected these most recent signals is in is an area where I filmed uh, very high, very highly compelling UFO footage and even uh, luminous phenomena really? appearing yeah appearing right above the ground like triple sensor imaging and stuff like that. I have I a lot of long nights out in that region and so when I was at the open house I, I was I was sort of measuring the, the waters to see. If, uh, if I, if I, what if I said to these guys, Hey, well, this is great stuff, guys, but do you know about the UFOs that are flying over here every night? I mean, I just wonder what they might have said or not said. That's true. <laughs> maybe they would have gone quiet on you. Well, maybe, maybe it would have attracted the attention of one of the, the uh, senior, uh, or that too on, on site, which I managed to do anyways, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're looking in deep space for something that may be much closer to us. If, if you're a, a sky watcher like myself, you may be, you may be persuaded that the phenomena is much closer to us than we need that we don't need to consider the the abstractification of projecting intelligent life into some extremely far corner of the universe you know that we may or may not ever be able to reach out to but rather that uh due to the prevalence of incidents and and at this point um uh US military reported incidents uh, such as the what is uh, the Tic Tac off of San Diego that was part of the New York Times story? That oh, yeah, that again, that that was a story that really uh, made the headlines all around, all over the, the big mainstream media. All, all sorts of different people were talking about that. And again, that really jump started the whole UFO community once again. Well, it certainly it was. It, when in my lifetime did I ever expect to see a headline like that on the New York Times? Yeah, it was pretty, it was, yeah, very different, right? Yeah, it was it was a very uh, shocking and uh, a new you know turn a new page. It meant that the Roberts panel conclusions with of the Durant report, which talked about public hysteria as a consequence of UFO exposure, that society had turned a page. We were no longer those people who would go nuts if someone from the government told us there were UFOs. We were no longer those people that they needed to fear that. We we had turned a page as a society. We had changed. Uh, now there's subsequently there's there's still a lot of confusion about what programs may or may not be doing or what disclosure may or may not be occurring, but it, it, everyone can acknowledge that those headlines occurred and that the footage originated from, from the military and the, the stories that attended that tic-tac were about craft that were making impossible uh, maneuvers 
that were the military personnel, people who were competent to fly all kinds of aircraft and identify all kinds of aircraft. Those people were outside of their, their comfort zone when they were making those observations. So again, we have the opportunity. I think, I think the, the practical, uh, damn the torpedoes type of people like myself say, you know, we're, we're, we're within, we're within reach of some answers to some of these questions in terms of our ability to make contact phenomena and make observations of our own and draw some personal conclusions, even if, uh, you, you see, I think as someone who's, in, who's been interested in ufology all my life and has had some experience publishing in, in that area and, and receiving feedback from different people over the years, uh, I, I certainly have no problem imagining that the, the bureaucracies that have invested in the UFO topic over, over dec- like the last century, um, they have an investment in, in the continuity of things as they were. We see reports today, for example, from competent um, uh, reporting centers who are making deals with news agencies to issue regular reports that are localized so that Cleveland, Ohio can have its, uh, you know, stations can have their latest reports and Minneapolis, Minnesota can have their latest reports about events happening in their area. People are ready to provide that kind of information and the news stations are rejected and they're, they're bringing back the, uh, the mockingbird uh, effect. They're talking about tinfoil hats and so on. It's like we're, it's like we're still effectively in the 1950s if we can't have adult level conversations today. Uh, so it's, it's, it's unclear, but I, I say that there's a perception that the legacy organizations that have investment in, in maintaining the, uh, information marketplace as a gray or black market where, uh, there are no controls, uh, restrictions or fees of quality guarantees that you might receive on more governed or more licensed. Uh, oriented, structured information arenas, uh, more vetted information that the public is, it serves to, it serves to offer covered up the programs such as, you know, domestic intelligence operations, military intelligence, those types of things. I think it offers, offers a form of cover that the state isn't ready to relinquish. I'm just glad that all this discussion is happening now, just like yourself. I never once imagined it either. I, I never once thought that it would be coming out on on stations or networks like Fox News, for instance, and having that kind of a headline story. Well, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's it's inspiring, and we are with, with with what free speech we have, we are you know sharing in, in participating in the conversation. Uh, there's no doubt these are exciting times in a number of ways. But uh, I guess I guess in some ways I'm, I'm I'm a cynic because I in my mind I I had already kind of abandoned waiting for. Society to, to to take the first step forward. I I saw that we had different opportunities today in the in the margins of society. Uh, the you know, the UFO hotspots and things like that. Uh, we have it here in the Northwest in Washington State and so on. Uh, there are there are places where people can go if they go enough times with their cameras. They're going to get some amazing. So we can go. We can personally engage with right. it. And I thought I, I guess I had a very, I, I continue to have a deep investment in that. And maybe. There will be positive developments. Uh, you know, maybe good news will come. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Disclosure has been a subject that has been going around since uh, 2018 and a little bit in 2019, even though this just began. It seems like the interest is still there. And one individual I did want to get your opinion on is Gary McKinnon. Uh, are you familiar with Gary? Gary is the programmer from Scotland. Right. Who- the uh, U.S. military and, and NASA computer systems and said that he found uh, a roster of personnel for ships that weren't in the U.S. Navy. Yes. Well, he's a very, obviously a very famous Interesting activist, guy. To say the least, and he was subject to threats of extradition for a decade 
this is a very severe, very severe circumstances. You know, it's sort of like a Julian Assange. You have to live under those circumstances. Yeah. It's crazy. It really is. And he makes the claims that he hacked a couple military computers and found evidence of UFOs and uh, the cover up and free energy suppression. Well, uh, it, it's possible, uh, given the loose, uh, information management practices that have, that persisted at least through the Hillary Clinton era in the government, we can imagine the possibility that in fact the password on the Pentagon computer was the word password. It probably was. So, or it was, or it was maybe one, two, three, four, five. Like, like that, you know, this, this very loose management style, uh, that, that had existed in, in, let's, we could say without, without, you know, being, uh, too extreme that it was, you know, in our more naive days, uh, when the internet was new to the public in the early 1990s, there were practices, there were all kinds of things that were possible, uh, that, uh, there weren't, there weren't as many, this, the levels of protections that are available now as well. Oh, as way the, different. Yeah. The types of pro- the levels of problems and, and threats that exist in, in the cyber universe now are quite different from that time, and so it's it's not unimaginable to me that uh, that a hacker could could penetrate into those systems and find that kind of information, but that he went that he became visible for it. I think he was I think he was eventually tracked down. He was as at his girlfriend's pad, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, it's possible that Gary McKinnon, in other words, represents the tip of an iceberg of a population of who knows a hundred people who saw something related to what he saw, who haven't been caught or haven't gone public. I agree, and I was actually going to bring him on to the show. I was actually talking to him. He listens to the program, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen. He likes the show, but when I invited him to be a guest, he did not at all want to do it. He says he doesn't want to talk about the things that ruined his life. Well, he suffered, obviously he suffered tremendously. Oh, he did, yeah. I get it, that feeling. He, you know, he, he did a tremendous public service. I have, I have great regard for Gary McKinnon and his, uh, his, uh, capacity to withstand, you know, what he went through that to make those shocking discoveries and to have to live under the pressure of the, of the state, uh, is, is something I, you know, I can relate to Gary's, uh, challenges in those regards. I know he's, a, he's facing an uphill battle, no doubt from the beginning there. And he's not a big fan of Planet X or, uh, Marshall Masters for that, for that matter. <laughs> Not a big fan. I, 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 I have, you know, I, I have little, uh, interest in those topics, although I respect that there's, they're very, there's community people who are following these issues. I, I, I don't necessarily seek answers in, in, uh, in, in, from incoming planets, but rather the, you know, the planets of our souls, you know, the constellations that are inside of us. I think there's lots of answers coming from those as well. I, I prefer to look, look there for answers. I agree with you, uh, completely. No doubt. I, I feel the same way. Always I, have. I also, I also have a terrible streak within me. You know, when I when I think about the predictions industry, it's fueled uh, many many uh, you know hundreds of hours of talk radio over the decades. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, <laughs> that's true. I, the prophecy well, stuff. Some of the legacies that have persisted uh, in terms of uh, the, the reliability of the information is it's it's you know it's hard it's hard to make accurate forecasts, uh, no doubt. But uh, people love people love future future oh, yeah. love uh, forecasting. So you could be David Wilcock, you could be any number of people uh, offering predictions that uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, uh, but uh, it's you know it's it's a it's a genre that. Um, are, you, I, are you are you referring to John Hogue? 
Ed Dames was the other one. Oh, uh, Ed Dames. He's more the one that has come up with all sorts of things that have not come true. But so has so has John. Well, what what was John's uh, forecast? I, I I'm not familiar. With uh, he's made so many over the years. I don't think he's got any of them right ever. I could be well, talking out of out of a out of turn here. I'm not quite sure exactly if that's accurate or not. But the ones that I, I kind of slightly remember, I think he's kind of been off. Well, it's so it's more common than not that but people love uh, prediction. You know, people have been consulting gypsies with crystal balls since you know millennia, and so that the audience fervor for these kind of information has has not diminished. But I just think it it can be a it's 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 a it's a little rich for my blood to uh, you know to not if if. Per, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of arenas of life where we sort of, there's sort of a thinning of the herd, uh, due to performance. You know, some people are really meant to be linebackers on, on football squads and running up and down that field. Some people, that's, they're really meant to be there. But, uh, if you're not meant to be there, you, you kind of, you find out quick, you know, you get in the scrum, kind of find out whether you're meant to be there or not. I think that, that kind of scrumming is, is healthy. <laughs> it uh, is, it is, that's true. So, yeah, I, I have some, I have some strong biases about those questions. I've, you know, in terms of, Future information. I've, I'm, I'm, I've been one of the fortunate people. You know, I didn't necessarily know at the time that what I was saying would be a relevance in the future, but I said it. Uh, I, you know, for my own reasons, and it just so happened on a number of occasions that I was correct. Uh, let's let's focus on what's working. You know, let's let's not um, for sentiment's sake or emotional reasons only. You know, pursue paths of, of learning, but rather let's let's also pay attention to what's working, what uh, and get people ahead further. Let's become you know let's make, let's become more intelligent by uh, supporting intelligent initiatives. I agree with you 100%. But we we do see these characters, especially in the UFO circles, uh, individuals that I personally feel aren't so genuine with the information they put out there. I mean, I go to these conferences all the time. Well, not all the time, but the times that I have gone to these conferences out here and elsewhere, I I still can't help but feel some of these people are not exactly telling the truth, John. Well, so this is what I'm saying is that the perpetuation of gray market and black market information uh, serves serves some sort of agenda because if we had uh, quality control controls uh, in place uh, that were acceptable to the population, then uh, we would diminish exposure to ideas or information that may be diminishing the, the public's potential to grasp the bigger issue. I mean, everyone likes, likes, like it fun and adventure, uh, but chasing after, uh, fictional phantoms that are just, you know, being written up at midnight and published at six in the morning, uh, every, on a daily basis because it's, now it's a business, um, that's, it's just so far removed, it seems to me, from, from cultivating the inherent, uh, brilliance of, of all of us. You know, all of us have great potential insight. Uh, if we can expose ourselves to can nurture our minds with uh, mental food that, that supports that growth and development, then surely we'll become visionaries in our own right and see the truth for ourselves. But the commercial marketplace as it is, uh, seems to sustain a bunch of secondary and tertiary agendas. I mean, we have, uh, some major figures, uh, in, in the marketplace have become notorious for surrounding themselves with armed bodyguards as if they were like the heads of cartels or something. I think I know what you're talking about. The whole theater of their presentation it now becomes about, uh, they, they are surrounded by armed security and that's, that's sort of some kind of status defining thing that has something to do with being able to make contact with UFOs. It's, it's, it's beyond ridiculous. I it's, think, I think you're referring to Stephen Greer. 
who I believe had his own personal bodyguards at a, at a conference a couple moons back, and they even locked the, the doors a couple times and weren't letting anyone out. And this is testimony, you see. It's testimony to the public distrust of the police services because I swear if I was a cell phone user and I was stuck under those conditions, I wouldn't have hesitated to call 911 and say, we're being held hostage. I would have, yeah, there would have been a problem, especially with me. And if I can't get out of somewhere, I'm pretty sure I would get myself into uh, serious trouble if I'm in that sort of a circumstance. Well, so, so the, 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 the legal uh, situation that as well as the insurance situation that people were exposed to. It's, it, it was an outrageous situation. I can't believe it either. I, I, but that did happen. Multiple people at the event, at, at that event specifically were telling me about it. It's, it's, it's shocking. It, it, it's more, it's much more of a social engineering exercise to, to, to measure the tolerances of the audience's personality worship, uh, you know, initiative. Who does that though? That's just absurd. Well, it, it's, we're testing the tolerances and we're testing the norms of society by breaking the norms. In fact, it's a very interesting comparison with the present administration in terms of President Trump as the rogue or the rebel who, you know, as he's mythologized somewhat by his, his base. That President Trump is going to drain the swamp, he's going to shake government, he's going to do things for the people, the, 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 the forgotten people of America, you know, he's going to be there for them, et cetera. It's kind of the rebel president. Was the aura under which uh, you know he, he popularized his movement, uh, and so uh, he, the president himself is is is, is testing the norms of um, from a you know from a very conservative establishment perspective. He's he's testing the norms of international dialogue, for example, in terms of his uh, encounters with with uh, long-standing American allies. The level of rhetoric. We saw in the last year between officials in the United States and Canada renegotiating the, the, the NAFTA agreement. It was unprecedented uh, talk about the, the prime minister of Canada is going to go to hell because he's not reaching an agreement. <laughs> you know, it's like, did we just, where does this, you know, is this North Korea? So, in other words, Stephen Greer's uh, envelope pushing conduct, it, in a way, is, is playing on this kind of rebel mythology as if Stephen Greer is the the rebel in the mix, and he's going to stir things and he's going to drain the swamp. Uh-huh. Right. So it, 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 it's something like that, this kind of playbook. It's I see commonalities, again, between the, pre- the president's camp, the way he's campaigned, and some, some of these quote-unquote leadership figures. Um, people, you know, people become obsessed with the aura of knowledge or the aura of uh, leadership rather than looking to, to, to the, the content of the thing itself. People become satisfied with the, the the image. Yeah, that's also like a psychological thing as well. Well, ex- exactly. That people, and I think I think that people who seek to take advantage of of audiences will play, play strongly on this knowledge that on um, mass people are less concerned with the details about how things work and more concerned about the image of leadership. Pointing, you know, if you if you follow my direction, you know, you'll get to the promise. They respond more strongly to that than they do to actually look at look at the map and make sure that uh, some cartographers were actually working on that thing. Yeah, that's another issue that a lot of, um, I guess you could say, Trump supporters have is they don't really discern anything. They just sort of read one thing and just go with it. Well, this question of intellectual capacity arises, and critics challenge challenge that, uh, which of course is you know an incredible generalization to say the least. Many reasons why people voted for President Trump, but there is this perception. There, there is a concern. I will say, 
I will say that, you know, and in light of uh, what Peter Ward was sharing earlier in the show, that there is definitely there is definitely an anti-intellectual trend. Well, yeah, that's the thing I was telling him, as you heard. I was saying, why are so many people so anti-science, so against certain things, and why most Americans don't care? And he sort of disagreed, but yet he agreed at the same time uh, during the course of the conversation. It, it, we do see that. There is an active invisible population that has an investment in that kind of culture. They're not the only uh, part of the – they're not the only population, but they're, they're, there's a highly active invisible population that has deep investments in, in superstition, in uh, mythologizing, in uh, dissociative type of culture that is removed from different important realities. And it's becoming more and more difficult even with our incredible interconnected Internet that facilitates worldwide communications. It's actually becoming more and more difficult for us to communicate with each other. And I'm not just saying that as my opinion, but rather this is what this is part of the dialogue that's out there in the, in the social media world. We're having we seem to be having more trouble uh Discussing differences in, in, and resolving them in meaningful ways through dialogue. That's dialogue is 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 losing ground, and uh, at, at its worst, uh, violent activism is becoming a more dominant way of uh, conflicting entities to, to 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 meet and greet each other. Uh, certainly, we have the, the level of street riots uh, in the last years. Uh, it, it only the tempo has only increased. Uh, not to say that under Obama that we're very severe civil strife scenarios, uh, but it, it, it appears to me that the, uh, the this Antifa alt right street street battling has become normalized in the culture, and it is being seen as as a, as, as a more reasonable way to work out differences. Uh, it's, it's very concerning because it's it's all of these are you know trends towards barbarism, right, away from civilization. And uh, it, it speaks poorly for the future. It's, it's, it, talk, it speaks to us about the failure of dialogue or the failure of dialogue. By the uh, way, do you, by the way, I'm sorry to cut you off, but uh, this relates to that. Do you feel that the head of Russia's Roscosmos State Space uh, Corporation, Dmitry, I believe his last name is Rogozin, he um, had mentioned that his visit to NASA's invitation has been basically canceled because of a second American civil war that is underway. Do you, why would he say that, by the way? Well, I, I think that this perception of entering into uh, the, the media dialogue and, and, and from a, a legacy politician uh, such as uh, Mr. Bogosin, if that Bogosin, is. yeah. Um, is is indicative that thoughtful people are are willing to consider that this level of strife is part of the trend in, in the current era under this administration that there there is uh there there is there are indications over time and uh, within the United States of of the potential for this civil war strife in terms of a, a shattering of how the society has has held together. You know, in its present form, to you know, to erupt into some kind of new society. I have no idea what that looks like, but this is a trend that I'm tracking, and I have different reasons to consider it. Um, I think I think that's probably the most visible speaker, the, the head of Roscosmos. This is a very uh, successful organization. I mean, the Russians are providing the engines that are launching a lot of the American uh, cargo missions to ISS. I don't think a lot of people are even aware of that. You know, the competency of Russian, the Russian scientists is, uh, cannot be uh, underestimated on a, on a number of fronts, the hypersonic research and so on. So yeah, we help each other, for those that don't know. 
right. So there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, diplomacy, uh, and they they wanted to bring this gentleman into the United States, even though he's under uh, sanctions. Personally, they wanted to bring him in because they thought it was important for him to speak to the people at NASA. So this 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 news item that that came out from TASS uh, said that I think that America is actually engulfed by its second civil war now. It was a very uh, was kind of a uh, a wake-up call, and someone like myself who's tracking this issue, I have different reasons to believe that there's this emerging trend. I, I essentially have reasons to believe that, um, you know, like in terms of my, this is my hypothesis du jour. <laughs> On January 13th, this is what I'm looking at. So two years ago, in 2000, two or three years ago, in 2016, Eric Prince, who's the brother of uh, Nancy DeVos, the head of the Department of Education, Eric Prince is the former head of Blackwater, the infamous mercenary organization. Oh, yeah. Staffed a whole bunch of positions in Iraq and Afghanistan and were, their personnel were called on for a bunch of times. It's on a lot of controversy. Uh, well, Eric Prince was in conversation with Stephen Bannon. I think it's called Academi now. Academi. That, that's right. They, 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 you know, they went through a name transition because of the bad press. Mm-hmm. Office, right? I remember. And so, um, he was in conversation with Stephen Bannon, the former White House advisor, on Stephen Bannon's uh, radio show, and they were talking about implementing a Phoenix program or a resurgent CIA Phoenix program. Interesting, yeah. And the story uh, emerged in 2017 in The Intercept, where they had a report. They said that Eric Prince was in conversation with President Trump talking about a research CIA Phoenix program, which meant a private uh, militia intelligence team that that operated under orders directly from the White House that was a separate operation outside of the CIA uh, uh, defense intelligence and so on. Uh, the Phoenix program was a notorious assassination program in of the Vietnam era. And in fact, it was the premise with the with the benefit of 2020 hindsight people look back now and they, they look at uh, apocalypse now from 1969 they said that's that's the phoenix program movie it's all about an assassin sent into cambodia to, in in that story to kill a to kill a you know blue on blue assassination to kill a, a fellow officer let's, let's listen to a little audio just to bring the audience yeah go ahead cool the of that film i wanted a mission and for my sins they gave me one It was a real choice mission. And when it was over, I'd never want another. I was going to the worst place in the world, and I didn't even know it yet. Weeks away and hundreds of miles up a river that snaked through the war like a main circuit cable. Germany. Colonel. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct, and he is still in the field commanding troops. Terminate with extreme prejudice. You understand, Captain, that this mission does not exist. Will it ever exist? So this film from 2020 Hindsight is really about the CIA Phoenix program, and I invite people to revisit that beautiful cinematography, but to see to see that that was how society talked about the unspeakable. The, the church committee hearings had only been held in 1976, where the CIA disclosed what they'd been up to for the past several decades in terms of MK Ultra and a whole bunch of secret and insidious programs. So when I was, uh, when this film came out in 79, I was still in high school and they had us reading, uh, Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness. 
but they should have really been getting us to read the 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 MK Ultra manual from the journey to understand what it, what the movie was really trying to tell us. Uh, this is uh, what I'm what I'm pointing to is this simply that um, I can envision as of tonight I can envision the implementation of a of a CIA Phoenix program domestically as a counterinsurgency effort on the part of the Trump White House. I can envision that. I listened to President Trump uh, from his Oval Office appearance last week. And many people said because he didn't announce a national a national emergency, it was a nothing burger. So some people say that he did better than the Democrats and so on and so on. But it was really, you know, it was watching a president dispassionately read from a teleprompter. It was not an animated president. It was uh, reading someone else's speech. Yeah, that, was yeah. you know, that reminds me of Operation Mockingbird. Uh, Mockingbird being the CIA infiltration of the uh, the, the, the manipulation media. of the news media for propaganda. Oh. Yeah. And that was one of the programs disclosed through the church committee hearings. And so let, let us listen to President Trump from earlier in the week. This is his Oval Office address. Roll with it. My fellow Americans, tonight I am speaking to you because there is a growing humanitarian and security crisis at our southern border. Every day, Customs and Border Patrol agents encounter thousands of illegal immigrants trying to enter our country. We are out of space to hold them and we have no way to promptly return them back home to their country. America proudly welcomes millions of lawful immigrants who enrich our society and contribute to our nation. So I, I've been a guest on your show previously, and I talked about speech analysis and the mirror reflecting audio. Oh, yeah. But by the way, I, I was supposed to have on just uh, on Friday uh, Dr. Uh, Oates, and you're not a big fan of him either. Uh, well, I, I, I have uh, certainly some very personal insight into the nature of uh, the practices, and uh, having lived through those times, I, I have very, very important reasons to believe that there, you know we need to. Uh, That's David yeah. how, how these things are practiced. There's, there's paperwork still available on the internet. People are looking for affidavits to understand some of that history. Art Bell was involved in a highly litigious sixty million dollar lawsuit with that individual. I was going to try to attempt to make him talk a little bit about that, but do you think I would have had any success there, John? Uh, it's, it's, this is so far over the horizon for me at this point. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, there is a lot, I'll just say there's a lot to answer for. Um, and, uh, you know, all of us are called, as men, we're called to answer for our, our conduct, good or bad, uh, better for everybody if we, you know, turn a fresh page by uh, letting go of, you know, letting go of that legacy. But, we can't we can't do that in the dark. We have to, uh, you know, transparency is uh, a powerful instrument. It helps us to overcome. It helps us to forgive. It helps us to seek forgiveness. Uh, there's a lot of forgiveness that needs to be sought. <laughs> That's hilarious. And my goodness, John, we are almost out of time here. We are running about mm, probably another 20 minutes or less. Well, I'm going to roll this audio because I think this is my big story of the week that I want to share with you. Okay. And we can talk a little more about that. It's, you know, all the topics in general that I've enjoyed talking with you about tonight. I've reversed Clockwise. this audio. I've used the digital audio workstation to, to mirror and reflect the signal. And by monitoring that signal, I've made it some detections. I've determined that I've, I also hear the president saying, uh, unconsciously, like he's sleep talking. I, I hear the words, the raids occupy. There is a, there is a, there is a, and then there's another, I heard that. Our, our best enemy. There is an enemy, there is an enemy, there is an enemy. And so when QAnon, which is a widely discredited, uh, 
information portal, uh, which which intelligent people are, are claimed is really an, an intelligence operation, a psyop. Uh, they they talk about mass arrests in their in their uh, discourse. They talk about raids. They talk about occupations. In fact, there was an issue where QAnon followers were were occupying a Mexican cement company somewhere in Arizona, I believe at one. But when I saw this language and I saw the context under which it arose, that the president was giving a sort of dispassionate reading off the teleprompter uh, and not he was not announcing a, a national emergency, I saw him plotting against his political enemies, talking about raids and occupations and arrests and using the, the term enemy. You know, uh, and the, the use of that particular language it has a more uh, military type application. Uh, I've heard openly the president talk about the press as the enemy of the people, for example. But it, it's drawing a line. It's like set, it's like defining a target for military action. I I saw that when I heard that speech that the president in his inner sanctum in his war room is discussing counterinsurgency activities uh, as as potential remedies to some of the political strife in the country. Uh, I had written I had written about the the president's uh, parallelisms with the, the National Socialists of the 1930s. Uh, late in in his campaign, as a, I, I threw up a, what I thought was a sort of a red flag around his national socialist tendencies, and that was before I wrote about the president's uh, Russian collusion issues in his yellow dossier file. But I really wanted to emphasize that in this, where the president is perceived to be cornered by uh, by the by Mueller investigation, Mueller investigation by uh, by judges striking down his orders. Before they ever get to roll out, you know, continuously, uh, by struggles with Congress and Senate and so on to move any initiative, his initiative towards the wall being now the, the, the visible, uh, point of contention that the president, uh, the, the president and his base, uh, envision some of the rhetoric that has been popularized in the QAnon, uh, literature. But QAnon is really telling us though what I don't think we necessarily understand when we're, uh, exposed to it. Cheering for it on television and flying their badges, QAnon badges and such. They might as well replace QAnon with the Phoenix operation because tonight, this is what I see that really the vision, worst, worst case scenario, one of the worst case scenarios that arises is the potential that the president unrolls a, uh, a, a counterinsurgency movement in the United States and with resulting conditions like uh, arbitrary arrest, detention, torture, the president campaigned on waterboarding. Uh, I, I foresee the potential for that as, as, as a potential seen as a political remedy for the impasses, uh, that the president, uh, is, we're, we're gone, we've gone far past civil discourse. The president was very restrained uh, during his overall office speech, but within him, I, I see the germs of the seeds of these ideas propagating, and I don't think it's so far-fetched to imagine that, uh, these are actionable ideas when, again, it's being reported by outlets like The Intercept that the president is in discussion with Eric Prince from Blackwater, Academi. He's in discussions to roll out a Phoenix program, except that when they're talking about it in the press, they're talking about rolling it out internationally. But I'm saying that the bad news is that they want to roll it out domestically. I think you might be right about that. I think that's already has that's already come to fruition. Well, there's, there's perceptions of civil war. In other words, we're, we're in the rhetorical civil war now in terms of the way, the, the, the way people talk to each other, the way leadership. Figures. So, so Dimitri was right. I, it, 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 it to some degree. My way of, to my way of thinking, 
and, and to see a distinguished figure, an international figure, make those pronouncements in the national press of, of Russia, uh, it, it, it encourages me to speak about it, uh, that I'm, uh, I'm not just, uh, you know, these aren't just, uh, you know, fever dreams. Uh, these are the president's fever dreams, as far as I can tell. Well, they're out there. And, of course, I do recall that Florida SWAT officer who was demoted after he was wearing that QAnon patch next to a pence there. Yeah, yeah this is a highly visible um, placement. When we talk about mainstream media, there's, like, there's, you know, this notion of product placement. And it, the, the idea that that, that... That's true. Product placement. ...shows that image. Uh, speaks to the, uh, you know, you see QAnon, like, like our more, most forlorn UFO researchers is, is promoted far beyond its level of competency. We're talking Peter Principle times a thousand in terms of its ability to deliver meaningful information. Uh, critics of QAnon publish extensively about how many predictions have not come true. But in terms of public appetite for it, it's great. Uh, and, and in terms, even, you know, as I say, well, I think what I'm emphasizing here is that the, its ability to propagate through the mainstream press like that, you know, vir- to become viral at CBS News and stuff like that, um, there's a lot of green lighting to, to make that happen. That's not just by accident. Uh, it's it's giving it's giving buoyancy to a bunch of ideas that are mo- for the most part appear to be deadweights. You know, appear to be albatrosses. Uh, you know, I think it's a junk. I think it's a junk news service is what I'm saying, and that intelligent critics have have written that really looking at uh, an intelligence operation. Fronting as a public movement, you know, when was the last time that happened? Like, you know, every year since the 1970s. And so, uh, it's, it's, it's very suspect because again, we're not talking, we're not talking about, uh, real achievement, uh, real accomplishment, real intelligence. So when the Chinese landed on the dark side of the moon, I'm convinced that they actually did it. And I sent footage back and, you know, that's a real technological achievement. Some and people they- don't even think that happened. Some people think that's CGI. People, people are challenging that. People challenge the NASA claims from 1969, but I, I, I believe in, I believe in the uh, evolution of societies, and I, I'm, I'm convinced that the Chinese are competent yeah. to achieve something of that scale. Me too. I think they did, did, did land on the moon. What I really mean to say is simply that it makes sense that that's, that's international news. But QAnon is so, is appears to me to be so uh, checkered, so checkered with misinformation, and so easily testable and provable misinformation. It, it, it's irrational that it has any buoyancy with the public, and yet we see it getting propagated in this way. Uh, I think there's a lot of editorial green lighting, and that it's easy to imagine that with the disclosure of the Mockingbird program in 1976 at the church committee hearings, that Mockingbird editors are remain in place today, and they participate in, in advancing uh, what CIA spun disinformation as news items. And so this is... This again is, we talk about a deep state and I, I, I'm saying that, I'm saying that my findings, uh, convene with what QAnon is saying, which is kind of contradictory for me because I say I don't even believe in QAnon. But, but in terms of the narrative that's being discussed, I, I, I suspect that the QAnon followers, the, ma- the majority of them, in their, in their feverish passion for change, don't even consider what it would actually be like living with a Phoenix style assassination program operating domestically. You know, having your neighbors rounded up in the middle of the night and taken away in a van and you never see them again. I mean, do people really want to live like that here? I seriously hope not. But it does seem like the majority of people out there are hardwired to sort of worship something. Well, so we have the... They always seek for a leader of sorts to tell them what to think or what to do or how to feel about this or that. 
And so the cult of celebrity and the cult of personality is a very strong part of the culture that we've manifested here, that we've moved a lot of responsibility for questions related to lifestyle choices and decisions or political decisions. You see, we've got Kanye West in the White House, right? Remember that incredible drama? I try to forget that even happened. (laughs) But because he's a leading cultural figure, that, that, that story has incredible weight. Yeah, that makes me real proud. He's an, he's an extremely <laughs> successful businessman. Say what you will about his contributions to culture or whatnot, but he's, his celebrity. Can't deny yeah. celebrity though, that's true. And it's this, this, this power, the, the cult of personality is a very powerful influence, certainly in, in, in the structure of the culture in the United States. And it's been, it's been finely tuned. This isn't by accident. But rather, it's it's a part of the social manipulation or management of a society. When we think about characters such as the great Louis Armstrong, he was uh, a State Department envoy. He was an amb- you know he was an ambassador uh, representing the United States when he was performing internationally. He was a political figure. People don't grasp this that the entertainers of the the, the chosen few who are given you know all that buoyancy and, and and you know ridiculous incomes you know far far beyond their contribution perhaps. Um, they're, they're actual political, they're political figures and they, they serve as unifying, their, the, the, the intention is that they serve as unifying focal forces of society to override people's individual decision making. They're, they're, they're considered more, more powerful personalities. You know, when we went to school, you, most of us probably had experienced cliques and, uh, you know, personality worship. We saw that, you know, we see this in high school. That's true. And kings, right? Uh, the, football champion and brings home the trophy and all that, the, the powerful idolatry that happens in the in the minds of particularly of young people, young adults, have the most um, ideological sort of potential. In other words, best in a, in a strong personality. And so uh, these forces are, are part of what's at play. We're, we're kind of, as I say, we're kind of prisoners or bound by these forces that have been uh, conspired over long, long periods of time, they're coming to fruition. These are just, these are the circumstances of the day. It's very hard to break through the um, cacophony surrounding the, you know, the glamour of personality and celebrity. Uh, President Trump himself, as, as an example, just one example, and certainly not the only person we could we could make an example of with regards to he, he infamously said that he could pull out a gun and shoot someone in the middle of the street at 12 noon in, in Manhattan, and people would still vote for him. Well, they would defend him, no doubt. So you see that, you know, the president not being exceptional in that way because uh, the conduct of many folks, scandalous individuals in the UFO community, for example, have far exceeded their their best by dates. I mean, those times are long past for many figures, and yet they they persist. Their buoyancy and visibility and the forces, the support, you know, the the support of marketplace forces for those people continues to push them to the forefront. But their uh, the quality of the quality of their offer is, you know. Most of us don't buy bread that's, you know, three months old. Uh, we want something fresh and, and viable. So anyways, uh, as you can see, I'm very cynical about Don't worry. It's okay. You're supposed to have an opinion and let us all know about it. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, I hold out, I hold out hope because ultimately I, you know, I believe in, in, in people's individual ability to awaken to their own consciousness potential and become visionaries in their own right. And I, I uphold that. And I say simply, the more we spend refining our own qualities and our character, the less, the less outward seeking as consumers we are. And the more we seek from our own resources within and cultivate them and become stronger within, the more likely it is that we will stumble upon the truth sooner 
I, I like, I, I like, I think freedom of assembly is a, is a very important uh, freedom that people enjoy in America, and I hope that we continue to enjoy it, and that people assemble around as many diverse issues as they can imagine, that communities will assemble and enjoy each other's good companionship and all those experiences. But uh, let, you know, let's assemble around something that's wholesome. Let's assemble on something that is, you know, bright and shining and, and reflects our own potential. And uh, from that, let's let's become empowered and, and share that share that with the world. Let's let's let the world know how great we are. We talk about making America great. Let's talk. Let's let the, know, the world know how great we are. Let's not hide behind the dullness of confusion and misunderstandings. Let's become insightful. Let's become powerful and, and uh, shake the world for the better. Very well said. And of course, before I cut you loose here, I was curious on what your opinion was on Vice President Joe Biden, who has shown. I guess some sort of interest to run in 2020. Well, there's a large field of potential candidates who have announced uh, their interest. Uh, I'm, I, uh, I, I have, que- I have questions about the, the former vice president's character with regards to his conduct towards young women. Uh, I, I'm, I'm critical of his, uh, his, his, his. his I, have, I think he has questionable character. Uh, I, I don't see him as an empowering leader. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I certainly don't mix. I don't. Attempt to influence elections, but I'm not a Joe Biden fan. He's not, he's not a first pick, you know, just as much as, uh, you know, I, Hillary Clinton's passed her due date as well. It's, those times are over. I'm excited. I'm excited for the, the younger new faces in Congress. Uh, and, and I'm interested in seeing, uh, what happens at Tulsi Gabbard. I'm interested in seeing what happens with her campaign. She's announced that she's going to run. Uh, these, these kinds of folks, uh, they, they, you know, the people who bring the, that type of activists do something energy to, to their campaigns. Uh, I'm inspired because I think that's in some ways is, is some of the best, the best American tradition, political tradition is someone stands up and said, I'm not going to just sit back and criticize government. I'm going to get in, wade in and start to start fixing some of the problems myself. President Trump would, you know, to many people, many people hoped that he would, uh, embody that, but I think he, he was only successful so far, it seems, in the rhetorical part of that. I don't, I don't, I have, I've yet to see, I think if he brings all the troops back from Syria, um, that will, in, in the short term, it may be a solution, but then, it, you know, I have for the Kurds, I think the Kurds, the Kurds shot at those terrorists, the Kurds deserve some sort of future as well. It's a very complicated problem. Being in leadership in the Western world is a very complicated uh, issue for anybody to take on. But I, I hold out hope for the young and fresh faces in American politics that democracy allows people in. Uh, and and I, I want to see how their ideas play out. If if the parties embrace and accept some new leaders from within, um, I, I hope that there potential change. Uh, but again, without insight, without ethical, uh, a strong commitment to ethics, uh, we will we're going to be bound to repeat a lot of the same mistakes. Uh, there's a complicated future ahead. I'm just trying to manage a tiny narrow window where I can perhaps see see into some of the things that are coming. And as I said tonight, some of the worst case scenario is you know the fratricide. Type of, uh, type of fighting, uh, domestic blood, bloodshed letting. And with the pressures on, with the pressures on the economy you've already just described, I mean, I, I have Larry Kudlow, who's the head of, uh, President's Economic De- Development Panel talking about job loss. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the, the talk about the 2019 recession is, is fresh and new and relevant today. People need to start looking at why, uh, 27 pound, uh, Buckets of macaroni and cheese are selling out at Costco. Why is because a <laughs> great point. The the, the 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 pressure is only going to continue. The uh, the stand the shutdown is exacerbating the weaknesses in the economy presently, which is already teetering in some ways under the trade wars. 
uh, and uh, there's 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 potential for reconciliation with China, given uh, there's some there's a lot of red flags going up. I think we're moving into difficult times, and under economic pressure, people are more likely to hit the streets as activists uh, when they're out of work and they're out of money. Uh, people are uh, people feel compelled to do to, to to take courses of action that they wouldn't normally consider. Very well said. And John, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program yet again. You really brought it tonight, no doubt. Really appreciate you being uh, open and honest with all of us. And John, if you'd like, go ahead and plug anything before I cut you loose here. I work as a clinician with a private practice for more than 20 years. I've been helping people with recovery from trauma and uh, family of origin issues. I invite people, if, it, if they've enjoyed listening to me talk tonight, to contact me to find out about private individual sessions available by telephone. My toll-free number is one 453 1-888-453-0751. And my website is yourinnervoice.com. I've been practicing uh, for more than 20 years. Uh, my work has caught the attention of established professional uh, mental health workers uh, internationally, and for good reason, we're delivering issues-focused work, helping people to to break through to their own potential, to, to relieve themselves of the burden of the past, and become their, their truly enlightened self and their empowered self. Well, thank you very much again, John, and I will give you Peter Ward's a private email there for you. Wonderful. To get a hold of him there. I, I will be following up with you. Good, a great conversation tonight all around. Clockwise, John, and I'll talk to you again on the other side. Looking forward. All right. Mahalo. And there he goes. That was John Kelly, another great, great soul out there. And, of course, if you are listening to this on a replay, keep in mind you can always listen live every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. That's every Saturday. Go ahead and come back in here next week, and we'll do it all over. I hope you enjoyed tonight's program as much as I did. I'm Michael Deacon. Thanks for hanging out with me here tonight. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, Alex Jones. I've been waiting a long time to talk to you. Anyways, I just wanted to say, um, I remember back in the day, uh, Y2K, the Bill Cooper incident, and you smoking Louise Main Joe Rogan. Now you lost your kids, and I'm so happy about that, dude. If I ever seen you in real life, I would smack the shit out of you. I uh, would we'll delay that because we can't have cussing. I've never taken DMT. Thing sucks. Who is your daddy, Five, and what does he do? End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. They die. I can't believe it's